Lord, we thank you uh, again for your word, and we pray that this morning that you would cause us to dwell on it richly. Work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we would see uh, your faithfulness and your goodness to us in Jesus, that we might more be in awe of him, that we might more be drawn to entrust ourselves and all the things in our life right now, the, the things that we are excited about and, and we look forward to, as well as the struggles, the concerns, the heartaches, that all of this we would entrust to you. We ask that you would help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Planet Earth, Season 2, Island Episode. You must YouTube this when you go home. YouTube, Iguana versus Snakes. Planet Earth 2, Iguana versus Snakes. These baby hatchlings are born on this island, and they have to cross this sort of open area where there are all of these racer snakes that just love to catch a baby iguana and eat it. And so uh, this particular scene, if you YouTube this and you will see it, a baby hatchling is born. And you see it just very still there. And then the camera pans over and you see in the rocks about a dozen racer snakes just waiting. And then this baby iguana is so, so uh, just quiet and still and a snake slithers up from behind. And then in a moment, the, he takes off, the iguana takes off, and perfect, like the music is like pounding. It's like big drum sound music. And you see this iguana in slow motion just running across this, this open field area. And then the camera widens up, and you see in slow motion snakes just pouring out after this little baby iguana. At one point, they catch the iguana, like four of them, and they're, you know, they're strangling it, and then it slips through, and it keeps running, and it, and it gets to this rocky area, and it starts trying to run up the rocks to safety. And you see one snake after another just lunge, like mouth open. One snake hits a rock, another snake is about to lunge, and the iguana jumps from one rock to another rock, and at that precise moment, it lunges, and it falls into a pit, and then the iguana keeps running, and it keeps going, and it gets to the very top, and it gets to this place of safety, and the commentator says, a near-miraculous escape. <laughs> that scene, that imagery, is a picture of what Matthew is showing us literarily and theologically in this, in this chapter. In Matthew chapter 2, he's picking up this theme that we've already talked about in the service from Genesis chapter 3 of the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. A, a theme that really runs throughout the whole Bible. And Matthew is showing us Jesus, the, this promised seed and offspring. And he's showing us, right, Jesus is the one through whom the salvation is going to come, through whom deliverance is going to come. He's going to end the exile, as we saw in Matthew chapter 1. He's going to fulfill God's promises to Abraham and to David. He's going to usher in the era of the new covenant and of forgiveness and peace. And we see him being hunted down, yet preserved by God's purposes and, and his sovereignty. 
Now, let me just say, if this was 10 years ago, that's all that you would get from me. You would get that only like a lot longer. Um, but I've been married uh, to my wife now for 13, um, going on 14 years, and reading the Bible with her has been super helpful in so many ways because I'm guessing that for some of you, that's not what you were thinking about when this was being read. Some of you were drawn to this middle section of the text, which talks about an event that is so horrific that if... (laughs) If we're not just hearing this as a story that maybe we know and and we've heard before, but if we're actually thinking about what is happening, the murder of who knows how many innocent children. And what I've really come to appreciate about this text and thinking about it the last week or so is how Matthew's, in a sense, the nerdy literary theological stuff actually speaks to this problem of evil and suffering. When I think about um, the struggle of believing and trusting in Jesus, and I mean for those who are Christians who at times struggle to believe and trust in Jesus, as well as those who would say, you know, I don't, I don't think I am a Christian. I don't think I really believe this stuff. Um, I don't think that this is really real. In moments that I've had of real honesty with people in conversation about this, if you dig down deep, a lot of times underneath all of the other objections and struggles, not every time, but so often the burning question is some version of why? Why all of this pain? Why all of this suffering? Why is there so much evil? If God is all-powerful and good, why this world? And this is a passage, I think, that really shows us how God speaks to this. Uh, this is, the question of evil and suffering can be answered philosophically, but ultimately it has to be answered personally. And what God gives us in Scripture is not so much a philosophical answer, but rather he gives us a person. That he gives us himself. God in person in our world, he gives us Emmanuel. He gives us Jesus. So what I I want us to do this morning is look at this passage and think about the problem of suffering and evil through that lens of Emmanuel. And there's three themes that, uh, that I think Matthew develops and I want us to think about. So the first to see is Emmanuel hated. And then second to see Emmanuel in humility and weakness, and then third, to see Emmanuel who is for us. So first, uh, Emmanuel, God with us, hated. If you were with us last week, you'll remember uh, the first part of Matthew 2. Matthew clearly shows us the tension between this new king, Jesus, who's been born, and King Herod. So I'm just going to read the first three verses and just emphasize what Matthew has kind of highlighted for us. This is starting in Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod the king hears about another king, and that's bad. 
And you'll remember that Herod lies to the wise men and, and he says, I want to worship this child too. So tell me where he is so that I can go do this. But the wise men are warned in a dream not to go back that way and to tell Herod anything. And so our passage begins, verse 13, with the events after the wise men depart and we're told that Joseph must take Jesus and Mary and he has to flee to Egypt because Herod is going to destroy this child. And then we read this in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Right? For Herod, there can only be one king, and that's him. And so when he can't kill with precision the one child who is supposed to be king, he goes on this mass killing spree, two years old and under, in the general region in which he knew that the wise men told him this child was to be born. And there's a couple things that I think Matthew is showing us. Uh, first, Matthew is showing us Herod is just another prime example in the line of this seed of the serpent. This seed, this offspring that is at war with God's promised seed of the woman. So like others before him, whether we think of Cain in Genesis 4, who heard God's word of, of warning and promise and instead killed his brother Abel. Or you think of Pharaoh, who heard God's word of command, let my son go, let Israel go that he may worship me, and instead oppressed Israel and sought to destroy them. Or Saul trying to kill David in the book of 1 Samuel. Herod rejects God's word of promise. He heard the prophecy that, that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, so he heard it, but he rejects it and he seeks to destroy this promised seed. But Matthew, I think, is also showing us the root of evil. And it is the rejection of God. It is turning from God. It is sin. And this rejection of God always leads to hurting others. So you think about Cain and Abel, Pharaoh and Israel, Saul and David. But we see it in our passage in all of its terrible brutality and violence and utter selfishness. Herod's supreme devotion to himself, his ultimate allegiance to himself results in, like really think about it, babies being murdered, little children who just learned to walk being killed, children who months earlier had said their first word, their life being cut off. Paul describes this phenomenon in Romans chapter 1 where he says, we turn from God, we refuse to worship God, we worship, which is to say, we live for whatever we want, something here in creation for ourselves, for something other than God. We set ourselves up as our own kings and sovereigns and what's the result? Paul says, humanity, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed. Like, think about your life and your experiences of these things, whether you've done it or others have done it to you. They are full of envy, murder, deceit. They gossip. They slander. They are arrogant. 
boastful. They are faithless, heartless, merciless. I love the way one writer put it on this, uh, on this passage. He says, what Paul describes systematically in Romans 1, Matthew describes biographically in Herod. This is a picture of fallen humanity. And therefore, it is a picture of us and of the potential evil in us. I realize if you're like following with me right now, that must sound crazy because as you think about Herod, Herod is like pure evil, pure evil. I mean, how could I see myself in that? But just for a moment, just think about anger. Like trace the root and the thread of anger in your life. What do you do when something that you really want is threatened? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that if you take anger, if you take hatred, if you take even the ways like in our speech, we dehumanize and degrade someone else's humanity, you know, by saying, you fool, you idiot. This is akin to murder. And in our hearts, all the necessary ingredients are there to actually pull the trigger should the right circumstances be present. Should we find ourselves in the place where we are triggered and pushed at the wrong time and in the wrong place, just like Jesus says, to lust in the heart is to commit adultery. The raw materials are there in us. The self-interest, the self-worship, the self-deceit. Is that how you think about sin? Is that how serious, in a sense, you think about sin and turning from God? Let me apply this to the problem of evil for a second. If you do away with God, if you say, I can't believe in God because of all the suffering and evil in the world, what you actually do is you cut out the legs from the very objection that you're raising. The the atheist uh, Richard Dawkins writes in his book, A River Out of Eden, Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, our universe, quote, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But take that and try to live that. Try to live as if suffering just is and is totally natural. Try to live as if there is really no such thing as good and there really is no such thing as evil. And then... See evil like in front of you. See it on the news. See it in people's lives. Look at injustice. Look at death. Look at disease and famine and war and brutality. And sit with the reality that if if Dawkins is right, then that's just natural. And everything in you that recoils and says, no, that's wrong, that's not the way it's supposed to be, is fantasy. If Dawkins is right, then what Herod has done is not wrong. It's just power. It's just what happens. It's the strong eating the weak. But if suffering and evil actually leads you to lean in and to listen to God's word, what you'll find is a thick description of evil, a robust description of evil, and therefore also of good. And though, of course, we are uncomfortably indicted 
and found guilty, found wanting of this goodness, there is hope that perhaps this God will do something about it. And in fact, that's what these other two themes in our passage really develop. Second, let's think about Emmanuel, God with us in humility and weakness. Um, at, at our house, uh, Aaron and I are big fans of uh, Netflix series, The Crown. I don't know if any of you watch it. I, well, I know a few of you do. And we just finished uh, seasons three and four about two weeks ago. Um, one of the episodes tells the true story of when Pr- Princess Diana took her first solo trip to the United States. Um, and she goes to this hospital in Harlem and now, right, this, this is 1989, this is New York City, Harlem, an area of the city that is steeped in violence, in poverty, in drugs, and it was so shocking that Diana went there because no president had gone, and hardly any politicians had gone. But she goes to this hospital, and she goes to a ward in the hospital that's filled with children dying of AIDS, and their parents have already died And this was at a time where the AIDS epidemic was huge and it was not fully understood. And there was this huge stigma and so no one wanted these children. And no one wanted to touch these children. And Diana goes and she picks one up. And she hugs this little child. And everybody is completely shocked. And they're mesmerized by her. Because here is someone who is royal. Someone who is so important And yet she draws near, and she comes near the broken and the hurting and the suffering, and she embraces them. But what Jesus does in this passage is something that no royal could ever do. Though he is God's son, though he is the promised king, he doesn't just come near the brokenness and the helpless and the weak, he himself becomes weak. Six times in this passage, Jesus is called child. Three times in verses 13 and 14, Joseph Joseph is commanded, rise, take the child. And he does because Herod is about to search for the child. And then at the end of the passage, Jesus again is called child three times, verses 20 and 21, where Joseph is commanded again, once again, rise, take the child. Jesus never acts in this passage. He doesn't do anything. Rather, he has to be acted upon. The Lord of heaven and earth, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, this God takes on flesh and has to be carried around by a Jewish peasant, a poor man. Jesus is not just some king, some royal who comes down into the broken, dark places of the world to see what life is like, to offer compassion, to listen, to show kindness. He doesn't just visit, he moves into the neighborhood. He takes up residence. He lives the experience personally. I want you to think about the vulnerability of children, of minority children, of refugee children. Jesus has personally experienced that reality and that life. He is God with us in weakness. 
if you look at the end of the passage, verse 22 through 23, Joseph is warned again about uh, the danger that's going to the child. And so he moves the family to Galilee, and Jesus grows up in Nazareth, to which Matthew writes, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's some debate exactly on what Matthew is exactly referencing here. But in, in my reading, what I found most convincing and helpful is that Matthew isn't really talking about one specific text, but he's talking about a larger theme in the Old Testament, which is why he uses prophets plural instead of prophets singular like he does in verse 15 and 17. Nazareth is this backwoods, nowheresville kind of place. You may remember one of Jesus' early followers asking the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To say he will be called a Nazarene, Matthew is tapping into this theme in the Old Testament with texts like Zechariah 9 through 14, Psalm 22 and 69, Isaiah 52 and 53. This reality that the coming Messiah, God's king, who's going to rule over the whole world, is going to come and basically be a nobody. And he's not going to be recognized. And there's going to be nothing in him that draws us to him. And obviously he's so important and so great. But rather, we're going to despise him. And we're going to reject him. And that this is the life that God in humility came to live. As one writer put it, no point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point in having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. That's what this chapter is about. But I think perhaps... Maybe even more than that, most importantly what Matthew wants us to see and what Matthew really focuses on is how in these very moments of darkness and evil and suffering in these very places that Jesus and God in Christ is fulfilling his promises of salvation. So when Joseph must take Jesus to flee to Egypt in that dark moment and dangerous situation. Verse 15, Matthew wants us to know and to understand this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. It's a little quotation from Hosea chapter 11 and really this quotation is, it's like a, a hyperlink where it takes you to the whole of Hosea 11 and I'd encourage you this week, read Hosea 11. Um, If you read it, I think you'll be moved by it. The chapter begins like this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, God says. And then this quote that we have, out of Egypt I called my son. It's a recounting of Israel's story, beginning with the Exodus. How God loved this son, Israel, and how he brought him out of slavery that Israel might be his But the chapter goes on to explain in such excruciating ways how this son just kept on turning away from God and rebelling against God. And God says this, this is the imagery he used. He says, I was like a parent and I taught Israel to walk. I held him in my arms. I led them with cords of kindness and love. I bent down and I fed them, but they kept turning from me. At one point, as God is thinking about the coming devastation to Israel, he asks this question, how can I give you up? 
My heart recoils within me. And then the chapter ends with hope that once again, God's going to do a second exodus. Once again, he's going to gather his people. He's going to bring them back from Egypt. He's going to bring them home. And what Matthew is telling us is Jesus is taking up this broken story of the failure of Israel. And in himself, he is reliving Israel's story, but he's reliving it unto fulfillment that the promises of God might come to fulfillment in him. And in the moment when the children are being killed, Matthew tells us in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. And like Hosea, this is a hyperlink to the whole of Jeremiah 31. And I'd encourage you to go read it this week. With the one exception of this verse that Matthew quotes, Jeremiah 31 is incredibly hopeful. This is the chapter that talks about God's new covenant. The new covenant that he's going to establish with Israel. It talks about the future days when there's going to be restoration and forgiveness and wholeness. And that even though in the midst of right now there is great suffering and Israel's being judged, that God's going to restore his people again. I just, just listen to some of these words and think about as an Israelite hearing these words of hope. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again. I will lead them beside streams of water because I am Israel's father. For, for the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, the oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. The young women will dance and be glad. The young men and the old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. That is the, that's what Jeremiah 31 sounds like. And then there's this one verse that basically is depicting right now the Jewish mothers as they are weeping over their sons who have been lost in battle and carried off into exile. And Matthew picks this up and it's like he's saying, the children are being killed. But hold on. Hold on. The fulfillment is coming. The new covenant is coming. Salvation is at hand. Right in the midst of darkness and evil, God is at work fulfilling his promises. And I want you to take those three themes that we just thought about in Matthew and think about how we see these three themes again at the end of the gospel. We see Emmanuel, God with us, hated as all of the evil of humanity comes together around him, the cowardness of his disciples who flee and won't stand with him and even stay up to pray with him, the evil of the Gentiles and their rulers, the evil of the Jews and their rulers, the brood of vipers which is humanity surrounding the Son of God to kill him. And then I want you to think about the end of the gospel where we see Emmanuel, God with us again in weakness and in humility. In weakness as he is so weak he cannot even carry his own cross. In humility as he is dying publicly, exposed, shamed, mocked. And then I want you to think about the end of the gospel where we see again Emmanuel who is for us who right in the midst of the darkness and the evil and the suffering is fulfilling scripture 
and fulfilling God's promises that salvation would come and deliverance would come, fulfilling all righteousness, paying all of our debts because he is the God who is with us and the God who is for us. Let me just say a few things about what I think this means for us. What it means to trust in Jesus, part of this is us taking those experiences of suffering, of evil and darkness and recognizing that Jesus is with us and relating to him in that, speaking to him, praying to him, reading his word and sitting with his word and recognizing that he is with us because he actually went through it. He experienced life in our shoes. But it also means trusting him and entrusting to him all of the evil and the pain and the suffering and the darkness that makes no sense to us. Because we see in this passage and we see in the gospel as a whole that it, is, it was exactly in those moments that made no sense and looked like so much senseless evil that God was actually working out his plan of salvation for us because he loves us. And he's given us his word that we might hold on to those promises and those truths, that we might stand in awe of him, that we might trust him and know that he is faithful and good. Let's turn to a time of prayer as, as we always do uh, after we hear God's word. And maybe this is a time for us to, to speak to God about our struggles, uh, our sins, uh, to seek his grace and his help. So we'll have a short time of silent prayer and then I will close us. Let's pray. <laughs>